And now from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. Romans. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Martin Luther King Jr. is well known for many things, uh, but few things match the notoriety of his famous I Have a Dream speech, where he described his hope and his dream for the future of peace, of racial reconciliation, of a better world. He declared this hope, though, in the midst of great hardship and suffering, of discrimination and death threats, abuses, and yet for him, all the suffering that he was undergoing was worth it for this dream. A dream that in itself had no certainty, that he could not know if it would ever be more than a wish. But this is not the suffering that Paul here is speaking of. It is not suffering for something that is a hope of something that might be, just maybe, possibly, but it is suffering with confident assurance of certainty. Confident assurance that what is to come is supremely, supremely more wonderful and more sure than this hardships of the present. So as we look at this passage, let's not go in with a, a haughty view. For we as humans are prone to compare. We're prone to compare many things, and our suffering and pains are not an exception. For it would be easy to hear this passage and think that this author, Paul, doesn't know. He doesn't understand. You don't know what we've been through. You don't know what I have suffered, Paul. And to take pride in these type of things, to take pride in our difficulties that we have gone through, But let's not forget who is writing it. This is the Apostle Paul, who in 2 Corinthians said, With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I have received the hands of the Jews, the forty lashes less one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. And he goes on and on to list the trials and tribulations and the sufferings that he underwent in his ministry. So none of us can say that this man did not understand suffering. Yet, it is not a comparison with himself or a comparison with one another that this text is pointing us to, but rather, we are to consider and compare with the future glory. For verse 18, says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Here Paul is drawing the point of comparison between the age that is present in the age that is to come, between our present sufferings and our future glory. Yet on the surface, of course, Paul literally says it's not worth comparing. But this is the equivalent of saying that it's not worth comparing a pebble to Mount Everest, for placing both on opposite sides of a, a balance scale would seem rather unnecessary. But it is not a pebble and it is not Mount Everest that Paul sets in place, but the present and the future. On the one hand, Paul characterizes this present as an age of suffering, as one of groaning, as one of pain. And on the other hand, the age that is to come, our future, which is characterized by glory, is characterized by redemption, by adoption, and the Holy Spirit himself. 
So this verse, verse 18, will kind of be our, our main point for tonight's sermon and really the thesis of this text. It will serve as our outline as we move forward. For we see in 18 through 23 the present sufferings of this present time of creation and of Christians and also the future glory that is to come and our assured redemption while we wait in the in-between. So creation here, as we, we look at the text, simply is referring to the entirety of the subhuman created order. Paul is personifying all of creation from the sands blown by the Santa Annas to the spiders in your garage right now as waiting, groaning, as birthing, if you will. No, not literally waiting and groaning, but personifying this present age as one of eager longing. This present age as one of waiting. And the word choice here in verse uh, 18 and 19 seems a little redundant. It says in verse 19 that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Eager longing. For me, it seems that eager and longing kind of convey the same idea. So what is Paul doing? Well, really, he is trying to really focus us in on the activity of this. He's trying to double down on the intensity of this action. For instance, as I was kind of reflecting on this passage, it reminded me of a story when I was younger. My, uh, my younger sister was chosen to be a part of, par- of a parade. And we were in a small town. If you come from a small town, you know that that's a big deal. Parades are, are the hubbub of the town, and it's a, a big thing. So we arrived early on the day of the parade uh, to get a good spot. And as it began, we knew when my sister was coming and that her float was coming down the line, so to speak. And as it went by, we realized we were getting closer and closer. We were moving closer and closer to the road, almost leaning out into the road, sitting forward in our chairs and craning our necks around the corner as far as we could see, waiting on a glimpse of what we knew was coming. And this is the same type of eagerness that I think Paul is depicting here, an eager longing. It is creation craning its proverbial neck and leaning to see what lies ahead. It is with anxious anticipation it is looking forward. But it is not to a small-town parade that it is looking for and longing, but the revelation of the sons of God. The day that it looks for is the day that is coming when the sons of God are revealed to all. It is the day of our great glorification, the day when Christ returns. But why? Why is creation looking for this? As we consider this present suffering of the age that we live in now, why is creation looking and longing with crane neck for the revelation of the sons of God? Well, simply it's because of death. Because of suffering, because of futility and corruption, those things are the heartbeat of this present age. Verse 20, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation was subjected to futility, unwillingly. Futility It's a unique word. This word is the the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word in the famous Ecclesiastes saying, vanity of vanities. Creation was subjected to vanity, or better yet, to frustration, to absurdity. And this absurdity between reality and between expectation is unresolvable. Things are not as they should be, and we see this as we look around. We see that life passes as but a vapor, that the wicked prosper and the righteous fade away. But not only is it futile, and absurd, but verse 21 says it is in bondage, creation is in bondage to corruption. And these two aspects are pointing our minds back to the garden, back to the Genesis passage that I read just a moment ago. For there we see God curse, place a curse on the ground. 
says, Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. That is the present age. That is this present time of suffering. Because of the sins of man, of Adam, creation was unwillingly, because of Adam, subjected. And now this age is one of brokenness. It is one that feels the effects of the curse. It is corrupt and absurd, if you will. But even in this dark, dismal picture of present sufferings, Paul reminds us that in Genesis, they were still subjected in hope by him who subjected it. God is the one, then, who placed this upon creation. God is the one who subjected it. Not all is lost. It is not this deep, dark picture of dismay, but one of hope. For the Lord says to the serpent, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He prophesies of the coming Messiah, of Christ himself. So while creation is personified, and this suffering is this present age that we live in, it is yet yearning to obtain freedom. It is yearning for this Revelation of the sons of God. It's yearning for freedom from captivity. But this yearning is yearning as to childbirth. For what comes, if you ask any woman with childbirth, well, hours and hours of intensive labor, pain, and suffering. But then, glory. Hours of pain and suffering, and then glory. Christ even said in John that when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, because her hour has come. But... When she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, obviously, most women here would say they probably still remember their labor and the pain in childbirth. But by comparison, pebble to Mount Everest, it is not worth comparing. But suffering, then, we see in this passage, and we see in what I quoted from the Gospel of John, is the path that leads unto glory. But it is not just creation itself here that is personified as suffering. For we know that this present age is suffering for us. I don't have to tell you that. We all know this intimately. We feel the effects of the curse. This fallen, absurd age that we live in, we we can identify with verse 18 with the present sufferings without much effort. Because we do suffer. We suffer. Verse 17 before this said, Heirs with God, we, heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we as believers, we suffer. We suffer persecutions. We suffer beatings, death by flame or sword, or being socially ostracized for our faith, maybe criticized for our belief in Christ. But the suffering is not limited just to suffering for the faith in and of itself, but I would say it includes all of our suffering. It includes all the suffering we undergo because we are united to Christ. We are in Christ, in union with him. So as we suffer, it includes all of our suffering. Our suffering in this present age from cancer, from autoimmune disorders, from the effects of injuries, from the slow decay of time on our backs and knees that we're all too aware of. Many of us suffering now, sitting here, listening to this message, that are fighting with chronic pains and ailments. Yet the suffering is not limited to our physical suffering either. For our minds and souls, we struggle with anxiety, with depression, with discontentment, with dissatisfaction. We even suffer in our fight against sin or the consequences of our sin. We truly are a suffering people. Yet, like the text mentions, we groan. We groan inwardly in our unredeemed bodies. But we have been justified by the Lord. We have been adopted, according to 8, 15, and 16. 
We have received the Holy Spirit of adoption, but our bodies are yet to be redeemed. This is one of the hopes that we set our sights on as we look to the glory that is to come. As we look around us, as we look in the mirror, we know that this age and that creation itself has a certain incompleteness to it. That there is more, that there is a future glory when all is put right. And this is what we groan for. We do not groan in dismay like Eeyore, oh bother, but we groan in hope. We groan for future glory that is certain to come. So let us consider then that certain glory, that beautiful picture that Paul is outlining of this future glory, the cosmic consummation, if you will, of redemption, the totality of redemption for the whole world, the whole cosmos. Looking at that, we see back in verse 18, our header, it says that the present is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This glory, the age that is to come, it is to be revealed to us. It has not yet fully been revealed. But we, as heirs, are to be the recipients of this glorious revelation. But not only its recipients and to be revealed to us, but I would argue it's to be revealed in us. For this passage clearly points to our glorification. It points to us as the objects of glorious redemption. What is that glory? What is this glorious redemption? Well, the redemption of our bodies. It is the adoption as sons. Verse 23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. But wait, there's that tension possibly for some of you now, and I know for me when I first read the text, aren't we already adopted? Earlier Paul said we've received the spirit of adoption. Aren't we already sons of God? Paul said so. So just to clarify, our adoption has occurred, and it was once and for all. But it will be fully manifested and revealed to all of creation and to one another on that last day. It will be revealed as we, in our bodily resurrection, enter new creation with Christ. And we wait for this. But we are adopted now. We are already received into the number of the Lord's children. We are already counted as heirs of the promise. We already have the Lord's name upon us, his spirit within us. We are under his fatherly care. But in particular, of the promises that we have inherited is the promise of our redeemed bodies. For redemption of our bodies is the mark of the transformation for the rest of creation. It is the, the sounding gong in some ways when Christ returns for the rest of creation. Remember, this is what creation itself said it's longing for. Or Paul said creation is longing for, the revealing of the sons of God. So when our adoption, when our redemption of our bodies is made manifest, and the sons of God are revealed, the new creation is consummated, and we, what we take, no, no, what we partake now and taste part in part, we will taste in whole. We will be redeemed. But not only that, creation itself, it says in verse 21, will be set free from bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And I know that's a lot of ofs, but simply put, creation will be set free from the curse and then enjoy freedom, liberation, in the glory of the children of God. What is that glory? It is our glory as the children of God. It's our Christ-likeness. No longer will creation be under Adam, but under Christ the creation will be set free from its bondage. No more futility. And we will be made like Christ. And this This is our glorious hope. We finite creatures 
will look like our wonderful Savior as much as a creature can. And I know, hopefully that sounds amazing. The day that our our fight with sin is over, the day that our suffering ends, to be with our Savior in the new heavens and the new earth. Truly, we all long for this. It's a beautiful picture. It is Mount Everest when compared to our present sufferings. But what we're going through, what what I just mentioned prior, this laundry list of pains with physical, emotional, with sin and everything else, I know I could have included a lot, but all of those things, they they pale in comparison with the glory that is awaiting us. But with a comparison so great between the darkness of this present age and the glory of this beautiful reality that is to come, what what do we do? Clearly, we would all say, well, I, I want that glory. Clearly, we would all say that we desire for this great, magnificent thing, this time to come. We believe even that the present is truly incomparable with what is to come. But we can wait on Christ. There's nothing more that we can do. But in that, often it's, it's easy to, to doubt. It's easy to be blinded by our sufferings. It's easy in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of hellishness, that in the now it is hard to believe that there is more. It is hard to believe and know that there is this greater coming, that it is not a pie-in-the-sky escapist dream that, oh, maybe if I just keep trucking along, maybe it will get better, but that there is more. And the Lord, in his great merciful kindness, has given us quite the treasure and quite the gift in our wait in this in-between time, between the present and between the future, between the age that now is and the age that is to come. What is it? Verse 23, the Lord has given us the first fruits of the Spirit. As we look, as we long and we suffer, we have been given the first fruits of the Spirit. Ephesians, Paul describes the Spirit this way. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Later, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee for our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. First fruits and inheritance are similar. Both are speaking of something in this moment with an eye of something greater that is certainly coming. Just as a down payment is given in anticipation of the full payment coming later, so the first fruits are harvested and taken in anticipation of much greater fruits down the road. And how incredible are our first fruits? How incredible of what we have been given, chiefly the Holy Spirit himself, God himself dwelling with us. Incredible. What a gift in our suffering. What a comfort. Yet we even take more first fruits and we get to anticipate more what is coming as we gather here weekly. As we gather here on Sunday and we worship in the heavenlies with Christ in glory. Soon enough we will partake of the body and the blood at the table. A small taste of the feast that awaits for us in the new creation, the new heaven and new earth. The rich affair waiting for us. But for now, we groan. But we groan with anticipation. We groan with anticipation of what is coming. We long for that inheritance as heirs and co-heirs with Christ. We long for our redeemed bodies. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For in this tent we groan. We longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We groan 
waiting in hope and anticipation, craning our necks, looking at the what we know is coming, our heavenly dwelling, our redeemed bodies. So brothers and sisters, sons of God here who profess faith in Christ Jesus, let us walk the path to glory as our Savior did, a road of suffering in this present age with assurance of the glory that is to come. A road of suffering which produces endurance, character, and hope, which will not put us to shame. And let us rejoice while we suffer, groaning with eager anticipation at what is certainly coming. We are a two-age people. Our home is in heaven. Our home is with Christ now in the age that is coming. But for now, we live here. We live in this present age that is not truly our home. For now, we consider the redemption with eagerness. But one day, our redemption will be manifested in its entirety. One day, our sufferings will end. For while our sufferings continue now and are not small, the glory of the new creation with Christ himself is truly grand. So, as Paul reminds us, we do not lose heart. Though this outer self is wasting away, and surely we know it is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day, for the light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So brothers and sisters, pray that Christ comes ever so quickly. And while we wait, let us lean. Let us look, crane the neck with eager anticipation at the glory that is certainly coming. For your Father sees you in your suffering. He's with you in your suffering. Not a hair falls from your head without the will of your Father. He comforts you in your suffering. He's given you the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. He's with you. Rejoice in your sufferings. Know that they are preparing something incredible for you, that you will participate with Christ in the new creation. And it is certain. It is not hope in the sense of the way the world speaks of hope, but it is a confident assurance, something that you can take to the bank. The rest of the harvest is coming. And that is great news. So let us lean and let us look for it. Let's uh, let's pray together.